Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello again, loyal listeners. Welcome to another episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air. This month, I'm back with Eve and Micah. Hello, guys. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning, Hello, Micah. Kurt. Hello, Eve. Good to see you both. Excellent. We're going to review the June table of contents and selected articles from volume 115, number six. As always, another great journal for fertility and sterility. So I think we're going to start with Eve. Great. Thanks, Kurt. I'm really excited about today's episode. We've got um, some stuff on non-invasive PGT, egg banking data, and so much more to come. Every year, Fertility and Sterility recognizes its reviewers of the year, um, three top reviewers who make exceptional contributions in peer review. And this year's top reviewers are Linnea Goodman, Jay Preston Perry, and Elena Yanish-Polsky. The section included a Q&A with each of these top reviewers and asks questions such as, do the reviews change your daily practice? What do you look for in an ideal paper? How does peer review benefit your career? And what trends do you see? I think what makes a fantastic reviewer, and no doubt this year's selections are all truly rock stars, is that even when they reject the paper, they provide helpful feedback to the authors to improve the paper so it can be redesigned or resubmitted as a better manuscript. Linnea Goodman said that she personally feels that in her own papers that were rejected, the reviewers took the time to provide constructive criticism, and that was the sole reason for future success of those papers. Press Perry states that he hopes to give back as much as he gets out of every article, and that even papers that aren't a great fit for FNS still warrant professionalism to help authors be more efficient and effective in future research. When asked about what he looks for in an ideal paper, he states that addressing noted trends increases engagement. He seeks diversity of voice and findings, large sample sizes, and explanation of the nuances to explain outcome heterogeneity. Elena Yanish-Polsky comments that she is happy to see a greater number of publications related to male infertility in the journal. She thinks the journal will continue to trend towards increasing numbers of papers on genetics and fertility preservation. And she also comments that as a peer reviewer, she learns something from every manuscript even the ones she is not able to recommend for publication. G2 hopes that her recommendations and comments could be useful to the authors for improvements in the quality of data and presentation. As you can see, there's definitely a recurring theme here. The, ro the role of the reviewer as educator, helper, and referee to call out the flaws, to help improve the manuscript, and ultimately to help drive the field forward. Congratulations again to these three incredible reviewers, and many thanks to all of our hundreds of peer reviewers at the journal. You are truly the backbone of what medical literature represents. 
Thanks, Eve. This is a really important section. The, the reviewers and the authors who submit to Fertility and Serility need to be uh, handled with professionalism and with constructive criticism. I think that's very true. This, uh, this is a terrific journal. Not everything can get into it, and we, I really thank those that are contributing and also reviewing. Yeah, I agree, Kurt. Every year, this is one of my favorite things to read in FNS from the three uh, reviewers who are selected for this. And I always learn a lot from this. And I would encourage young reviewers and fellows alike to, to read this and see what you can learn about doing uh, great reviews for the journal. So now we're going to move on to the views and reviews section in the June Fertility and Sterility. It's led by editorial editor Robert Brannigan and focuses on vasectomy and vasectomy reversal and emerging approaches to male contraception. I'm going to highlight the most interesting points from each of the articles. Velez and colleagues from the University of Chicago note that condoms and vasectomy are the only two approved male contraceptives on the market. That's something that we all know, but it's still shocking every time you read it or hear it. They also note that vasectomy is vastly underutilized in comparison to tubal ligation. This leads perfectly into the next article by Amory and Thirumali at the University of Washington, who discuss emerging approaches to contraception from a medical standpoint. They discuss oral biologic androgens, but also non-hormonal approaches like retinoic acid antagonists and retinoic acid synthesis inhibitors. I think non-hormonal contraception R&D is a huge area of need, both for men and women. Unfortunately, the non-hormonal male drugs appear to be much further from the market than the hormonal drugs do. Dubin and Ramasamy and colleagues from the University of Miami talk about vasectomy reversal versus surgical sperm aspiration for fertility. They note that vasectomy reversal is most often the most cost-effective method rather than IVF but IVF may be a better choice if the female partner is over the age of 35. Finally, Fantas and Halpern from Northwestern University offered nuanced insights into the techniques for vasovasotomy and vasoepididiostomy. This collection is a very nice review and will be of anyone interested in doing research or taking care of males from a contraceptive standpoint. Any comments from Kurt and Eve on the views and reviews? I wonder if OBGYNs in the future are going to start doing vasectomies. I mean, I think fundamentally it's not a challenging procedure. We take care of couples as REIs, and I think that as we want to offer the full scope of reproductive choice to our patients, um, perhaps especially in an underserved population, then I think it would be great to broaden access to vasectomy by increasing the, the number of physicians who are able to perform the procedure. Eve, that's a great idea. I, it goes to what I was going to say, too, which is we need to kind of change the status quo. We get so used to where things are now that um, I really welcome a change in care, whether it's non-hormonal methods or just a way to approach it. Um, I, I hate when we're complacent. Yeah, in Illinois, we, the OBGYNs do circumcisions. So operating on the male is not uh, foreign to us, and I think that for many reasons it makes sense. Yeah, great points. I was not thinking about that when I read those, but I, I love both of those points. So we're going to move on uh, quickly to the ASRM pages in Fertility and Sterility. And in June, we have three new documents from the Practice Committee. I always consider these must-read documents each month. The first is a combined document from ASRM and SART on guidance regarding gamete and embryo donation. This document succinctly highlights FDA and other regulatory requirements that all programs that offer gamete and embryo donation must be familiar with and adherent to. It's a must read for any ART program that handles donor tissues, uh, gametes, or embryos. 
The second document is guidance on the qualifications for fertility counselors from the ASRM Mental Health Professional Group and Practice Committee. This document provides guidance on the qualification and training of mental health professionals in reproductive medicine. The final document is the diagnosis and treatment of luteal phase deficiency. I was fortunate enough to be the good shepherd assigned to update this document with the help of Carl Hansen, Steve Young, and Molly Moravec. I personally think that this document is very helpful both for counseling patients on the lack of a proven association of luteal phase deficiency as an independent entity contributing to infertility, but yet hopefully highlighting that there's a need for more research on this topic. So three good documents from ASRM that I hope everyone goes and reads. Okay, thank you, Micah. Um, we're going to move to the andrology section now, and I get to review the first paper, which I think is a really practical paper and a very good one. It's titled Clarifying the Relationship Between Total Modal Sperm Counts and Interuterine Insemination Pregnancy Rates by Drs. Muthigi, Devine, and Tanrakut out of Georgetown University in Shady Goat Fertility. This is a well-designed, large retrospective study of more than 90,000 intrauterine inseminations in more than 37,000 patients over a 16-year period. You might think that this is a long period of time and perhaps things have changed, but I think we actually have been performing intrauterine inseminations the same way for 16 years, so I think this is an appropriate study period. This addresses a very fundamental and simple question. For example, what is the success rate of intrauterine insemination and does it depend on total modal sperm count, age, or stimulation cycle? So the study is well described, including the appropriate statistical analysis using generalized estimating equations for the analysis plan, appropriately controlling for known confounders, and clearly talking about the methods. The main finding of the study is that the pregnancy rate seems relatively stable when the total modal sperm count is above 9 million and below 9 million, the rate is progressively lower as counts decrease, and there does not seem to be a threshold that can be ascertained when IUI is futile. There are actually some pregnancy rates with some pretty low sperm counts. I also found some very intriguing factors, such as the overall success rate for intrauterine insemination was around 15 to 17 percent. Now, even Micah, I think you will understand this is a lot lower than I heard on the recent board exams from graduating fellows who claim in their hands success rates is 20, 25, and even 30 percent with each insemination. I hope that this will clarify things, that intrauterine inseminations is not as successful as we would like to think that it is. But it is pretty stable. It also demonstrates that the course of success is dependent on age. Um, there's about 12% for those that are greater than 40 years old and around 18% for those that are less than 35. Interestingly, I didn't realize this, there's also an impact on BMI, but it seems to be less clinically relevant because although it was statistically significant difference at the extremes, the actual pregnancy rate only varied by about 1% from 16% to 17%. The data also confirms what we think we knew about pregnancy rates with stimulation. For example, success with FSH was higher at around 19% per cycle than with Clomid, which again is around the median, around 16%. It's also very interesting to note that clinical pregnancy rates were very stable amongst the first six cycles. There didn't seem to be a drop-off after four or five or six cycles. I've always thought that I might consider intrauterine insemination an independent event, like flipping a coin that isn't exactly 50-50. Uh, but anyway, this data suggests that that's the case. 
I still don't know if there's diminishing returns for unknown factors when IUI might become less successful if you go beyond six, but at least we can be confident that um, trying six cycles is fair. Now, I've always used the rule of thumb that clinical pregnancy rates were substantially lower when you have less than four million total modal sperm. Looking at table one, you might be able to perhaps see that this is true, but it's actually kind of difficult to figure out where the cutoff is, as the authors mentioned. If you dip below 4 million, the pregnancy rate does look lower at around 10%, and there are some single-digit success rates when you start working with 2 million or lower. Please take a look at this excellent reflection by Dr. Romansky and Kang. They do a good job putting the data in perspective and raise some interesting questions. Since the prognosis of total modal sperm count is only known on the day of IUI, and clearly it has such prognostic ability, perhaps we should consider using a sperm wash as part of the evaluation of couples rather than waiting to find this information out on their first um, cycle. They also bring up an old theory that perhaps total modal sperm count can be increased by pooling multiple collections. I remember reviewing this as a fellow 20 years ago. Well, some things just come back. What I like best about this study is that the data is so clearly presented and the findings are so intuitive that we're already deciding in this conversation how we might change our care based on the presentation of this excellent paper. Or did they stratify by diagnosis? I think that IUI probably has less success in those couples who already have been trying for a year, a year or greater um, or who have unexplained infertility as opposed to couples who have PCOS and, and ovulation. I think that there may be a difference in success rates that we should be quoting based on female diagnosis, not just looking at total modal sperm count. Yeah, in this case, it was mentioned that they, they looked at some of the different diagnoses and it didn't seem to have an effect. But I think it's the population. These women elected to undergo IUI as part of a pragmatic, practical approach. Um, and they just really, it was focusing on more of what's the sperm count rather than why you got into that treatment protocol. What shocked me, Kurt, is what you mentioned about the success rates at the lower end. I think in this paper with less than a million sperm, those patients still had a 4% pregnancy success, which is much higher than I usually quoted and historically a 1% success if you have less than a million sperm. So just very interesting to see even at those low counts, people were getting pregnant at a lower rate, but still there was a chance. And as you said, there was no level at which it would be considered futile. Yeah, again, very practical information. Appreciate the authors for putting this um, time together in this large database analysis, and I think it will affect our care. Yeah, for sure. I think we're not going to be canceling. Sometimes we offer to cancel an IUI if the sperm count is really low to save money. I, I don't think that practice should be continued. Agreed. Okay, I think now we're going to move on to... Um, the Assisted Reproductive Technology section, and Eve, I think you're first up with an interesting article. Yeah, this is very interesting. The title of this article is Non-Invasive Pre-Implantation Genetic Testing for Aneuploidy Exhibits High Rates of DNA Amplification Failure and Poor Correlation with Results Obtained Using Trophectoderm Biopsy. This article was written by first author Brent Hansen with senior author Richard Scott from EVRMA. This was one of the prize papers presented at ASRM 2020, and I was so excited to read the manuscript so that I could really dive into the data and the findings. As we all know, the goal of IVF is to select the single best embryo for transfer. One of the concerns surrounding PGT is whether the trophectoderm biopsy itself damages the embryo and decreases the likelihood of implantation. Certainly, there's an element of talent involved here, 
and not all embryologists have the same skill. Ideally, if we could assess the potential of an embryo without invasive testing, that would be the gold standard. The purpose of this study was to validate a commercially available, non-invasive pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy assay that we're going to call NIPGTA by investigating the following. First, they looked at the prevalence of DNA amplification failure with non-invasive testing. Second, they looked at factors affecting the amplification failure. And third, they looked at the frequency of discordant results between NIPGTA and traditional trophectoderm biopsy for PGT. This was a prospective cohort study done in EVRMA. The study included 35 patients who had a total of 160 blastocysts. And the study was conducted between July of 2019 and May of 2020. Embryos were cultured in accordance with EVRMA's usual protocol for blastocyst culture. And remember this point as it's a major criticism of the study. Embryos were biopsied on day five, six, or seven. The decision on which embryo to transfer in a subsequent frozen embryo transfer cycle was based solely on trophectoderm biopsy samples, as all were blinded to the NIPGTA results. Stimulation protocols were carried out in accordance with the usual standard. The embryos were individually cultured in 30 microliters of media droplets consistent with the manufacturer's instructions for the NIPGTA kit. Embryo development progressed using sequential culture media consistent with routine laboratory practice. Laser-assisted hatching was performed on day three of development, and changeover from cleavage media to the blastocyst media occurred at the time of hatching for all samples. For NIPGTA analysis, the blastocyst culture media was collected immediately before trophectoderm biopsy was performed. This resulted in media collection on culture day five, six, or seven, depending on the rate of embryonic development. The embryo's duration of exposure to the culture media was determined on the day of trophectoderm biopsy and the day of media changeover. During the study, an additional media changeover was done day four for some samples. This additional media changeover was performed at the request of the NIPGTA kit manufacturer during just the initial phase of the study, and this step was later abandoned. So what did they find? There were 166 blasts from 35 patients. The primary outcome was the rate of amplification failure. When they looked at trophectoderm biopsy amplification, not surprisingly, they had amplification in 100% of all cases. For NIPGTA, amplification was analyzed based on the time employee status of the embryo. The longer an embryo was in culture, the more likely the DNA could be amplified. Amplification failure occurred 50% of the time with those that had the media changeover on day four. For embryos that were biopsied on day five, 83% had amplification failure. On day six, 33% had amplification failure. And on day seven, none had amplification failure. Embryos that were classified as euploid by trophectoderm biopsy had higher rates of amplification failure. There were 104 embryos with both trophectoderm and NIPGTA results available, and discordant results were seen in 42 cases. There were 36 embryo transfers that occurred. 
22 of these 36 progressed to delivery. And then of those, 14 were either negative, ectopic, or resulted in the clinical miscarriage. For these 14, six failed DNA amplification, five were euploid NIPGTA, and three were aneuploid NIPGTA. Based on these data, the authors concluded that the high failure rate of DNA amplification in combination with poor correlation with trophectoderm biopsy virtually precludes the clinical application of NIPGTA. The reflections to this piece was written by Carmen Rubio and Carlos Simone, who criticized the study for using the same protocol for trophectoderm biopsy for PGTA and expecting to see good results with a different methodology. They highlight specific portions of the protocol that are different in the use of non-invasive testing compared to traditional trophectoderm biopsy. For example, modification in the volume of the culture drop is necessary to concentrate embryo cell-free DNA to improve amplification rates. Typically, drops should be 5 to 10 microliters rather than the 30 microliters used in this study. Additionally, other important factors that require adaptation for embryo cell-free DNA analysis are the whole genome amplification protocols, as well as the diagnostic rules and algorithms applied to analyze results. Furthermore, the limited number of embryos that underwent fresh transfer with informative results for both sample types in this study makes it impossible to draw definitive conclusions. These two conclude by saying that this underscores the need for non-selection studies or an RCT comparing these two methodologies to truly understand the real clinical potential of the analysis of embryonic cell-free DNA. I personally think that the conclusions from the Hansen study are too definitively overcalled. They looked at 35 embryos, and they underappreciate the modifications that are needed to perhaps have better outcomes with this technology. I think it's a very exciting future direction for our field, and I really look forward to many more studies evaluating this further. Micah, what do you think? I think I have two main thoughts or just questions. The first is just everything you alluded to, the weaknesses of or potential limitations of this study just from the changes in protocols. So every time we've talked with the lab about doing non-invasive studies, the amount of changes that you have to do to your normal lab flow are pretty substantial, and it, and it makes that difficult. But, uh, you know, single, single embryo culture, not co-culture, needing to grow to six or seven days to, get a, to be able to get enough DNA to amplify, are we potentially harming those embryos where we would normally be freezing them on day five? So that was my first thought. The second one is if, if we debate PGT from trophectoderm biopsy, how likely is the spent media DNA going to be to represent the true nature of the um, inner cell mass? And how do we think about that as we think about this test? In other words, is this a uh, diagnostic test where Simone argues, you know, the diagnostic capability accuracy is maybe 75 percent, so higher than what this study showed. But are we comfortable throwing away 25 percent of embryos that are euploid if we're saying it's a diagnostic test? If we're just using it as a ranking test, then how good does the accuracy need to be? I don't know the answer to that question, um, but I think there's still a lot to be discerned from this area. 
Yeah, I was a little disturbed by the definitive conclusions they made. You know, virtually precludes the clinical application of non-invasive PGTA. It was a pretty strong conclusion on a study where you're not really sure if the methods are optimal. There's an old cliche in statistics, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because you couldn't find that it worked this time doesn't mean that we can later and we can't just make that conclusion. I think we're going to see a lot more papers on, on this area and I look forward to this because it's such an important and necessary um, involvement in our field. Yeah, I strongly agree with everything you said. And I also think that even looking at using a global media as opposed to a sequential media may in fact help have longer exposure of the media to the embryos. So I think there's just so much more work that needs to be done here. Um, and I really hope that research in this arena continues. That was a great discussion on NIPGTA. We also had a fertile battle debate on this recently. And so the next Fertility and Sterility Journal Club will be held on June 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, it is going to have experts Carmen Rubio, Paul Pertea, Catherine Rakowski, Laura Rinzi, and Richard Scott debating this topic. It will be moderated by Dom DeZiegler and myself. So we hope all of you can join us live on June 4th for the next Fertility and Sterility Journal Club Global. Good, excellent discussion. Thank, thank you, Eve. Micah, I think you're up next and we're gonna change the topic a little bit. All right, thank you, Kurt and Eve. So we're staying in assisted reproduction. Uh, we've got another article this month from Shady Grove Fertility. This is from Namath and colleagues, and it's titled Gestational Carrier Pregnancy from Frozen Embryo Transfer Depending on the Number of Embryos Transferred and PGT, a Retrospective Analysis. So this was a study designed to look at single versus double embryo transfer and gestational carrier cycles. It was a retrospective cohort study of almost 600 euploid frozen blast transfers into GCs. All of these were high-quality blast assists with a BB or better, the majority were single embryo transfer, 427 compared to 156 double embryo transfers. Overall, live birth was higher if you did a double embryo transfer, 51% of transfers versus 37%. But the rate of multiples was 20% with double embryo transfers versus only two with single embryo. That's a tenfold increase. 13% of double embryo transfers resulted in delivery of a baby with low birth weight. That was a threefold increase. And double embryo transfers were delivered preterm in an astonishing 40% of deliveries compared to only 13% of single embryo transfers, a greater than threefold increase. Finally, 4% of double embryo transfers were born extremely premature, meaning they were born before 28 weeks. That was four times higher. All of these outcomes are associated with comorbidities, including some of which can result in death or lifelong uh, morbidity. So I wanted to frame all of these numbers as far as uh, numbers needed to harm, because I think that's helpful. The number needed to harm tells us how many double embryo transfer deliveries have to occur for one additional poor outcomes in a GC cycle. For every 11 double embryo transfer births, one additional baby would be born with a low birth weight. For every four double embryo transfer births, one more baby would be born preterm. The authors conclude that both the intended parents and the GCs should be counseled that of these increased risks as they carry potential adverse outcomes for both the intended children and parents as well as the gestational carrier herself. The commentary was written by Amber Cooper and Julie Reed from Vios Fertility. I just want to quote their own words. 
While the conclusions are not necessarily novel, the study brings us back to the core of what we should all believe. Our job as reproductive endocrinologists is to provide the best and safest outcome for the intended parents, the gestational carriers, and the future children in accordance with FDA and ASRM guidelines, which means optimizing a healthy singleton live birth whenever possible. What we must remember, though, is that with GC cycles, another person's wellness is now at stake in addition to the intended children and intended parents. I just want to take a second to make a personal comment on this paper before I get even Kurt's thoughts. I became aware of this data last December since I'm a collaborator with SGF uh, Research and our fellowship. As a member of the ASRM Practice Committee and as the chair of the SART Quality Assurance Committee, this paper and another uh, data set coming out from Dan Grow with SART data really brought to light a national clinical situation where there's a real opportunity for us as a field to reduce risk and improve clinical outcomes. So beginning this year, SART is now tracking multiple gestation and gestational carrier cycles. It's now a new primary quality metric, one of only six that we track and highlight nationally. Also, if you read last month the revised ASRM guidelines on multiple gestation and the limits of embryos uh, to transfer that came out for member review and will be published later this year, single embryo transfer is now recommended for all gestational carrier cycles. I hope, like other ASRM and SART efforts, to increase single embryo transfer, this will lead to a safer ART practice. And my one last comment, since I know all these authors well, I asked Bob Stillman, Kate Devine, and Gene O'Brien if they just had any comment. My favorite one that they said was about the primary author, Dr. Namath. Dr. Namath, the primary author, is a first-year resident at Rush in Chicago, but yet she's collaborating with Shady Grove in D.C. to do research. And I echo Gene O'Brien, who told me, see, you can do meaningful research even very early in your career as a first-year resident. So, Eve and Kurt, I'm sure you will have thoughts on this paper. What do you think? I think this is a really important paper, and I really commend the authors for putting it out there. I think that we need to, this is a wake-up call, and we need a massive policy change for single embryo transfers for gestational carriers. And I think that that policy change has to extend beyond just the physicians. We have to get the gestational carrier agencies on board in terms of how they are counseling their gestational carriers. GCs should not be compensated an additional amount. Uh, they should not be asking for more money for twins. I think that the conversation should be solely focused towards single embryo transfer into a GC. End of story. I certainly agree with you both that the standard of care has evolved, which begs the question, why should we publish this paper? But I think it's that, that this kind of data needs to see the light of day. This, I mean, the, congratulations to the authors for putting themselves out there and, and, and potentially being, you know, harmed in their reputation for, quote, doing something that others wouldn't do. But this kind of study needs to get out there to show us quantitatively when you know, when, when, what's right and what's wrong and how we change our practice. So I'm, I'm glad it's published and congratulations to the authors. And with that, we'll move on to um, the next paper that I'm going to discuss, which is got a similar dilemma, but perhaps not as dramatic. This paper is titled Endometrium Preparation and Perinatal Outcomes in Women Undergoing a Single Blastocyst Transfer in Frozen Cycles. The first author is Dr. Hu and the senior author, Dr. Li, from the Third Hospital in Peking University in Beijing and the School of Medicine at Zhejiang University in Hangzhou, People's Republic of China. This is another impressively large study that tries to isolate different types of endometrial preparation while controlling for other aspects like 
this is only in a frozen embryo transfer and it's only a single blastocyst transfer. In this case, the authors are able to compare more than 3,700 women and see what the outcomes are with natural cycle compared to approximately 2,500 women who used hormone replacement or hormone-regulated cycles, which I happen to call program cycles, uh, and another 670 women who used a stimulated cycle. So let me say that again more clearly. A natural cycle included those with and without HCG trigger. A stimulated cycle um, used uh, Clomid, Letrozole, or even gonadotropins, um, and a programmed or hormone-regulated cycle was exogenous estrogen and progestin. So the ascertainment of all of these outcomes was very likely similar in all groups because it came from just one large practice. But remember, this is a cohort study, and we can't remove some of the inherent bias, such as why each woman was treated in each group in the first place. For example, there is a certain... For example, there certainly is a greater number of women with ovulatory disorders in the hormone-regulated cycle group. The other complexity of this study is that it's so large that we can find relatively small differences that appear to be statistically significant, making it a little bit hard to interpret and getting a little bit confusing. But in general, the findings include that a hormone-regulated cycle has a higher rate of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, preterm and very preterm delivery, as well as low birth weight compared to a natural cycle, among other outcomes, such as an increase in cesarean section. Conversely, the simulated cycles have a higher rate of gestational diabetes and preterm delivery. Look, I get it. I agree with you. It's very difficult to try to remember which perinatal outcome is increased with which preparation and how it's balanced with potentially other perinatal outcomes in different simulation patterns. But in general, it's becoming clear that there are differences in perinatal outcomes depending on how we simulate the endometrium. And perhaps it's easiest just to remember the large differences, the large absolute differences in this study, such as an increase from 2% to 6% in hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and an increase from 7% to 12% in preterm delivery in those of the program cycle. So evidence in this area is still accumulating, and probably there will be a very well-done meta-analysis in the near future to help us quantitate these differences and extend these possible differences. However, let's think about this philosophically for a second. I think our field has already agreed that there are significant differences in perinatal outcomes when we use a fresh versus a frozen transfer. Now we're learning that there may be differences in the way we prepare for a frozen embryo transfer. So how do we balance this? As pointed out by an excellent reflection by Jim Toner, clearly programmed cycles are easier for a clinic, especially a busy clinic. I remember asking a colleague a few years ago to design a randomized trial in this area. He told me that his clinic would revolt, and there's no way that he could do this, and his laboratory would probably all quit, which is really a question for all of medicine for a long time. How do we balance morbidity with the sacrifice of convenience? I can't tell you the answer right now, but it's really becoming apparent that a more natural approach is going to be better for the patient. If you think about it, did we really think we were better than all of evolution and nature? Anyway, that begs the second question, what is natural and why is it better? We reflexively say that it has to do with the corpus luteum. This may be true, but we're really not sure. We understand that it's probably not due to progesterone levels, because clearly progesterone levels are high in all cases and they're sufficient. 
Therefore, we say perhaps it's due to what else the corpus luteum secretes, such as relaxin, oxytocin, renin, aldosterone, VEGF. I don't know which one of these is true. Um, or perhaps it's the opposite. Perhaps we're giving too much estrogen or too much progesterone. Anyway, these biological questions still need to be sorted out while we figure out the first question. How much do we sacrifice maternal and child morbidity for the convenience of those that practice reproductive medicine? I think that's a great question, and I know that we struggle with this in our own program at Northwestern. We are doing more and more natural cycles, and Kurt, I, I'm just laughing that you actually used the word natural because a couple of months ago you came down pretty partially on uh, natural, but I think maybe we can say ovulatory cycles. And I was using it, air quotes, Neve. I want you to know that when I say right? natural. <laughs> you couldn't see them on a podcast. So, but, you know, I think it really, I think that's the question. And I think so often as physicians, we're used to sacrificing our weekends and our holidays. And I think that's the price that we pay when we go into medicine and residency. But, you know, I think it's a very different mentality for our laboratory staff, for our ancillary staff, for our medical assistants. And there's just so much unknown with natural cycles in terms of how many FETs are going to land on the same day. And then are you potentially sacrificing quality in rushing through thought protocols if you're not adequately prepared to have a high number of FETs on a single day. And so I think that we're in the mud here and trying to figure out what's best and trying to balance all of those competing factors. I hope that if the evidence continues to show this and this becomes overwhelming that you know we'll be able to make that culture change in our labs and in our practice because it will be a big culture change in, in how we manage our, these cycles. Kurt, I think you may have answered this question in how you presented this, but uh, I was going to ask you, you know, from an epidemiologic standpoint, there's not that I'm aware of good randomized data on this, although we'll hopefully have that within a year. But the observational data seems fairly overwhelming. So at what point do, do you say, well, we, the observational data seems good enough that we can say there isn't a true association here and it's not all the potential confounders that you said? Great question. I, I, I don't know. We've been fooled by observational data many times in medicine, um, and then uh, we think the randomized data is probably closer to the truth. Um, so. I, I don't know the answer to that. There, there can be confounding here, and I want to point out, like some of like a broken record, just because a study is really, really large doesn't mean that, the, that it still can't be affected by confounding. So um, we just have to be careful of, of this as well. Hopefully, we'll have a randomized trial on this and answer the question. But I do want to make the final point. It took us a long time to reduce the twin rate in our field because, in my opinion, often the clinicians didn't recognize the damage of twins because those patients were already referred out of their practice. They, they just saw positive pregnancy rates, and that's what they paid attention to. We've got twinning, not I don't want to say under control, but we're focused on it. But now I think we also need to focus as reproductive medicine specialists on the outcome of the child and the mother. Um, we can't just focus on success rates. Yeah, I want to echo that comment. Being an Army doctor, I still have to take labor and delivery call once a month. It's the worst night of my month, but it definitely brings into focus as almost every month I get to deliver one of my patients and see those outcomes, and it very much gets me focused on, on good outcomes. So I appreciate that comment, Kurt. Andrew, answer to my question. 
Great discussion. I, again, am really looking forward to see where the data lands on this. The NAPRO study is ongoing, and it's an RCT comparing natural cycle to program cycle. And so I'm also really excited to see the data from that study. This next paper that I'm going to review is early pregnancy, switching gears a little bit. And the title of this paper is Female Obesity Increases the Risk of Miscarriage of Euploid Embryos. This paper was written by Mauro Cozzolini with senior author Jose Belver from EV Foundation in Valencia, Spain, the Department of OBGYN at Yale, and the University of Valencia. The objective of this study was to determine whether female BMI is associated with an increased risk of miscarriage after euploid embryo transfer. This was a multi-center retrospective observational cohort study, and there were 3,480 cycles of IVF with PGTA for aneuploidy, and euploid embryo transfers were then divided into four groups according to patient BMI. Underweight, BMI less than 18.5. Normal weight, BMI 18.5 to 24.9. Overweight, 25 to 29.9. And obese with a BMI of over 30. The main outcome measure was miscarriage rate, which included both biochemical and clinical miscarriages. Secondary outcomes were implantation, pregnancy, clinical pregnancy, and live birth rate. IVF cycles were per physician protocol, and FET preparation was either natural cycle or hormonally prepared cycle. Natural cycle used HCG for trigger and timed embryo transfer one week post-trigger. So what did they find? Interestingly, while there were 3,480 cycles of patients, there were only 185 patients in the obese group. 73% of the patients in this study were normal weight. So the N at the upper ends of BMI was increasingly smaller with increasing classes of obesity. They found that the causes of infertility were similar among the different BMI groups and advanced maternal age was the most common. There were no statistically significant differences among the BMI groups and protocol types for either fresh or frozen cycles. They saw higher gonadotropin doses needed in the overweight and obese group, but fertilization rate, blastocyst development rate, and euploid rate were similar among groups. Implantation rate, pregnancy rate, clinical pregnancy rate were also similar among the groups. The rate of biochemical pregnancy loss was also similar among the four BMI groups. The key finding of this study was that miscarriage rate, meaning clinical pregnancy loss, of euploid embryos was significantly higher in the obese group and that contributed to a significant reduction in live birth rate. The reflections to this piece was written by Liz Ginsburg and Jenny George from Brigham and Women's, who bring up some incredibly important points. They note that multivariate analysis did not control for infertility diagnosis, including uterine factor, which is associated with much lower live birth rates in IVF. Obesity is characterized by enhanced estrogen production by adipocyte aromatase activity. And this high estrogen state can fuel the growth of uterine fibroids due to the presence of estrogen receptors. It is well known that there are higher miscarriage rates in patients with fibroids, and this was not examined specifically. Studies have also demonstrated increased rates of euploid miscarriage in the setting of adenomyosis. The higher miscarriage rate and lower live birth rates seen in the study's obese group could reflect underlying uterine pathology and not necessarily obesity itself. 
Finally, they also highlight the issue of low numbers. Of the 185 women with obesity, 130 had class 1 obesity, 45 with class 2, and there were only 10 women with class 3 obesity, a BMI of greater than 40. The authors cite the low prevalence of obesity and frequent denial of treatment in women with higher BMIs as contributing factors. Therefore, limited sample size within the obese group may fail to capture the true impact of obesity on pregnancy outcomes following euploid embryo transfer. Work from Christina Boots at Northwestern has also looked at this question, and they've reported similar findings of higher euploid miscarriage rates associated with obesity in a larger population of patients. Dr. Ginsberg and Dr. George note that studies with larger sample sizes at the extremes of the BMI spectrum and controlling for infertility diagnosis are needed to attempt to characterize the underlying mechanisms responsible for the lower live birth rates seen in patients with obesity. Again, a hot topic and I think a very significant problem that we face, perhaps more so in the U.S. than Europe. Eve, one of the things I was just wondering is how much of this is modifiable versus how much isn't, and how, how much are these findings potentially, again, due to confounding, which we've been talking about. You know, the patients in this study had both natural cycles, but also some were uh, hormonal regulated cycles, program cycles. And are these women with the BMI that's in the high range more likely to be anovulatory, more likely to have a program cycle? And then they um, were using vaginal progesterone, as, as Kate Devine's Secrony study shows, that has less of an effect. So is the con potential confounding somewhat driving these results? And even if it's not, is this something modifiable by how we do our protocols and our luteal support? Yeah, I mean, my, I think those are really excellent questions. And I think the question overall is, is obesity modifiable? And the difference between a BMI in the upper range and then a reduction of 5 to 10% may not make a significant difference in terms of outcomes. I think truly the key with obesity is going to be primary prevention and focused efforts in youth and adolescents and early adulthood to prevent the onset of obesity. I think once we're at that point, we also have the competing interest of age and time balanced against BMI reduction. And I'm, I'm just not convinced that BMI reduction makes a tremendous difference. I'll echo that. I mean, there's a lot of literature that says BMI reduction doesn't change actually pregnancy rates or fertility rates. So I, I think it would be short-sighted for us to think that it would change um, embryo transfer rates, but we shall see. Okay, Micah, I think you have chosen one more article that we're going to talk about today. Um, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. So the final study that we're talking about is by Blakemore and colleagues from NYU Lagone titled Plan Oocyte Cryopreservation, 10 to 15 year follow-up, return rates and cycle outcomes. So this was another retrospective cohort, this time of 231 uh, subjects, patients who had a planned oocyte cryopreservation cycle between 2005 and 2009. This meant that every patient included had 10 to 15 years for potential to return and utilize their cryopreserved oocytes. By plan, the authors meant that they didn't have a medical indication for freezing. Other papers might use the word social or elective indications for freezing. The average patient was 38 when she chose to have her eggs frozen, return for the use of those eggs at the age of 44 on average, and discarded unused eggs at the age of 47 on average. 
38% of women use their eggs within the 10 to 15 year timeline horizon. So 38% use them, but that means 62% or majority of them did not. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the outcomes of those cycles. As you might expect from a 15 year old study, much of the techniques used in, in freezing these eggs 15 years ago is very different than what it is today, as exemplified by the 74% uh, egg survival rate on the thaw side. So the authors concluded that most patients in the study did not use their oocytes after 10 to 15 years, although 38% did. The 38% was stable across all age groups. In other words, younger patients were not less likely to return, although I might comment independently that the study was not really powered with 231 patients to detect differences when stratified by SART age groups. And the authors conclude that with appropriate counseling, these outcomes may help patients better understand uh, oocyte cryopreservation and help guide their decision if they want to pursue this. I didn't see a commentary on this paper, but in my opinion, this data does indeed help us with the counseling of women who are considering oocyte cryopreservation. A lot of the data that we do have is based on modeling studies because uh, this is a relatively new technology and we don't have a lot of real world, world data. We debated this topic of planned or non-medically indicated egg cryopreservation at the Pacific Coast Reproductive Society meeting uh, just last April. And as Michael Awadala said in the chat, he's a graduating third year fellow at USC, the confidence interval of the mean is helpful when you're interpreting relatively small numbers. So if 38% of patients return with this size of study, uh, that number would be somewhere between 32 to 45%, which is actually still less than the majority, uh, but is also a little bit higher than what is reported in other studies. Of course, we don't know how generalizable a population in city might be to uh, women in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. But yet this is one of the largest real world data sets we have that's available to counsel women who are thinking about pursuing planned oocyte cryopreservation. So Eve, you were one of our uh, expert cons uh, discussants on that PCRS panel. What are your thoughts on this topic and on this paper? Yeah, so actually there was a reflections piece to this article written by Jen Bockinson and Kara Goldman um, that talked a little bit about the points that you just highlighted. Um, I think the paper is really compelling, and I think that there are two very interesting points. First, there was a much higher return rate to use these oocytes than reported in any study to date. And so I think it really highlights the question of, is this a unique population at NYU who chose to freeze their eggs compared to Anna Cobo's data, data from Spain? Kate Devine has some data from SGF looking at return rate. And those papers have really cited 8 to 8 to 15%. And so 38.5% is a giant outlier. And I think that warrants um, a closer look moving forward. The second key point is that women return to use their eggs at 43. I think studies like baby budgeting really looked at 40 as the cut point for cost effectiveness when women come to use their eggs. And we have some newer data. This was part of an ASRM grant that I received looking at cost effectiveness and decision analysis for egg freezing. And we actually modeled our decision analysis using women returning at age 43 to use their eggs. So I'm very glad that it's in line with real world findings 
because I think that there's a giant difference in IVF success rate between 40 and 43, and it's going to greatly change the decision analysis and the cost effectiveness depending on what age women actually come and return to use those oocytes. So really fascinating paper. I commend the authors, and I'm so glad that we're discussing this. I think it's just unknown and uncharted territory for so many. I agree with you, Eve, and the fact that it is unknown and uncharted is is really pleasurable that we can have this as kind of a baseline. It's kind of a snapshot because we can all guess that trends are going to change. In what way? I'm not sure, but at least now we have something to compare to, and it's worth taking a look now. So, again, nice paper. Yeah, great comments for both of you. And we're done with the uh, primary literature that we're going to talk about today, but, Kurt, we maybe saved the best for last. Uh, this is the last month with our current editor-in-chiefs, uh, Craig and Tony, and they wrote a very nice farewell and is their uh, media editor for their term and as the incoming editor-in-chief, uh, we would just like you to say your final thoughts on working with Craig and Tony over these years and saying farewell to them as their time as editor-in-chiefs. Thank you, Mike. It really is a, a privilege to, to review in this month's journal um, some of the pieces that are written to formally say goodbye to our two wonderful editors-in-chiefs, Drs. Craig Niederberger and Antonio Pellicer. Please read the very warm and grateful recognition directed to the departing editors-in-chief by Samantha Pfeiffer. She notes how these outstanding editors ushered in a wonderful period for the journal, including phenomenal growth, increase in global participation, as well as global recognition, and of course, a rise in the impact factor. All of this helped Marshall Fertility and Sterility to become the leading journal in the field of reproductive medicine worldwide, and of course, the crown jewel of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. To paraphrase the words of Dr. Pfeiffer, not bad for an American urologist and a Spanish reproductive endocrinologist. She also appropriately mentions how the society owes Drs. Niederberger and Pellicer a great debt of gratitude for their drive, commitment, enthusiasm, support, and innovation. It's also worth taking a look at the editor's pen farewell. The co-editors-in-chiefs are very gracious in their goodbye. They spend more time talking about all those that worked with them to make the journal better, including the editors, reviewers, and the staff. They also elegantly thank the authors and the readers of the journal. It is clear that the 10-year journal was fruitful and enjoyable. As their own words, they became best of friends. Dr. Nita Berger and Pellicer use a quote from A.A. A. Mills and Winnie the Pooh to say goodbye. How lucky I am to have something that makes saying goodbye so hard. Aptly said, thank you, Craig and Tony. You did a wonderful job. It's going to be hard for me to follow in your footsteps. I can only aspire to do as well as you did. Thank you for your integrity and all the hard work you did for the journal. Thank you, Kurt. So that was very uh, well said. We appreciate that farewell. And so we did not have time to get to all of the articles today. We've been listening to your feedback and a shout out to all of our listeners who've been giving us what, uh, telling us what you think about what is working for this podcast. And so today we went with fewer articles and more in-depth discussion and editorializing on our thoughts on them. And we hope that you enjoy that. We look forward to seeing you next month. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. 
This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.